if you can take the opportunity to just focus on what needs to get done, and to some extent, yes, you do want to still stay informed, but not just get too much of that externality kind of into your day to day. And just focusing onto your point earlier about control what you can control, right? And focus on that, right? And, and to some extent, don't, there's, there's things that you can't worry about, uh, the stuff that you can't control, right? Uh, if you're worrying about that, you'll literally have burnout. Thank you so much, Howard, for joining us today on Demo Day. Um, really appreciate you jumping on our very first virtual episode. Uh, a little weird, but hey, we're here and really appreciate you making the time. No, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to come on. Awesome. So I know that, uh, you know, in some of your older podcasts that I've listened to, I know that for you, it's not just about investing money in companies, but you've used the, the term rolling up your sleeves and really uh, being a bigger part of the, uh, being a bigger part of helping the entrepreneurs. And I know that part of that is really being a coach, right? Like venture capitalists do a lot of coaching, a lot of mentoring. And so we are right now in really unprecedented times for startups and how to navigate and communicate with their team with COVID and the coronavirus. And so my first question is, is as a coach, how do you coach your portfolio companies to navigate through these sorts of times? Or maybe said another way, you know, as you're having your portfolio calls, what sort of advice are you giving, if any advice at all? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think times like this, I think it probably kind of puts a finer point on the ability to focus on, on kind of what are the kind of the key and important things that you should be kind of doing uh, kind of these days, right? I think it's, uh, especially after uh, kind of companies raise kind of venture capital funding, um, you know, all of a sudden you have a lot more resources kind of uh, kind of at hand. And there is uh, sometimes uh, a, a feeling that I can do a lot more, mm. right? Now I can do all the things that I wanted to do uh, that I couldn't do before. Um, but yeah, I think the the, the, the I guess literally the opposite of that is probably what should be happening, which is you, you should be able to utilize, utilize those resources and focus on the stuff that really matters going forward, right? How do you marshal the resources that you were just able to kind of gather to hit that next milestone, right? And and no matter how much I think startups get funded, um, there's there's limited resources, right? It, it's literally a runway that we always talk yeah. about. You know, is it 12 months, 18 months, whatever the case may be? There's still a limited time frame, right? And so you need to be able to kind of marshal all those resources and focus on what actually moves the company forward. And whether that milestone is the next funding round, or you get to cash flow break even, or whatever the next milestone is that takes that next step for the company. That's what you should be focused on. I think in times like this, I think it really puts a, 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 I think a finer point on that, right? Which is you have to be very diligent with the resources that you have, right? Because we don't know, uh, I don't think anybody really has good visibility on you know, when this will pass, yeah. right? Uh, whether it's three months, six months, nine months from now or more, um, you just don't have that visibility. And so right now you really need to kind of, uh, we, We've been literally uh, having these conversations with founders quite a bit, obviously, as you can imagine, in these past few weeks, figure out what's important for the company, right? What really moves the company forward and how do you do that as efficiently as you can? I think the efficiency aspect of it, um, I think, is probably a, a core component of that, yeah. right? Um, and, and being able to be efficient and focused, um, I think, is a key thing. And from a 
leadership perspective, this is when the CEOs really have to kind of marshal that that leadership resource, that the leadership kind of um, skill set. You know, how do you guide a, a, a your team through uncertainty? Right. I think it, I think there's differences between, you know, when you have you know, you have enough resources to last a year plus. Right. I think it's another um, kind of circumstance when let's say your runway is shorter. Right. How do you still keep your team you know, motivated? How do you keep your team still focused uh, on kind of what needs to be done? And I think to some extent, it's going to be a different set of, of, of conversations yeah. that you have with these CEOs depending on what position they're in. Yeah, it's been really unique because, you know, my team is is 11 of us and we are so used to working in such tight quarters. And now the fact that all of us are distributed all over, you know, now the city, uh, learning how to focus on the communication between uh, each member of the team and how to drive different sorts of efficiencies uh, is certainly, you know, not only a challenge, it's something that I've actually been really excited about because it's forced our team to communicate in a different way than we ever have before. Doing things like, you know, having kind of a beginning and an end cap to how we do our stand-up. So everyone comes to the table saying, here's exactly what I plan to get done today. And then having a way at the end of the day where we all go through one at a time our list of what got accomplished. And even though it sounds like really simple, it's not something that we ever did when we were really in this office together. It was always just assumed that this person was getting this done or that person's getting that done. But now that we're dispersed, it's really helped us focus on what is the most important three to four things we need to get done today and having some accountability by presenting to the team and saying, hey, this is what I actually uh, got accomplished. So I love this idea of uh, focus being the most important thing because it feels like there's all these external factors that are coming into play here. So all you can really do, as you're as you're pointing out, is focus on that which matters most. And, and I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah, go on. If you want to add anything, no, I, it was just. I, I think. I think your point about. I think the communication aspect of it is. I think is a really important uh, kind of aspect. I think sometimes we take it for granted, right? Sometimes even um, being in the office, the guy next to you, right? Uh, the guys could be sitting next to you, but you really don't know exactly what they're doing. You just make the assumption since you're together, everybody's kind of in sync, right? I think. I think this. I think situation puts a finer point on that communication aspect, so that others really know what each other are doing and whether that is uh, kind of collectively adding to the whole, right? I, I think, and having that accountability, I think is, is, is a huge component of it. Totally. And, and, you know, certainly like I, kind of what you were just talking about, um, it, it's cool when you know what the rest of the team is. Like, I, I didn't realize it until we started working from home, but like all of our art department is learning what's happening in the data department and data is learning what's happening at the CEO and leadership level. And I'm learning. And so like, I think everyone feels a greater sense of team and togetherness, which is so strange because I never would have pictured a team feeling so close when we're so far away. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely been one of the things that has come out that feels more like a silver lining is like, I actually feel like there's more trust, more accountability, and more teamwork, uh, even though we're not physically present with each other. Now, yep. now Howard, your journey uh, is really exciting because like many of our guests, you have bounced between being an entrepreneur yourself and also being on the other side of the table as a VC. 
before talking, you know, and going deep into that, maybe we could kind of backtrack a little and just talk about early life. Um, did you grow up in Los Angeles? Where are you from? And, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about what life was like as you were growing up. Yeah, well, I've been, I think, pretty much certainly a California native, uh, but I, I, I think I grew up in Southern California, specifically Los Angeles, right? I, I went to high school, high school here. I also went to uh, kind of college here. I was at UCLA. Uh, I did electrical engineering. Um, as an undergrad, um, but then I also kind of uh, kind of doubled up um, and got my MBA from Anderson. Um, um, so I pretty much spent, I think, most of my career, um, I think, in LA. I, I did a you know a couple years stint up in the Bay Area and, and a couple years stint actually down in San Diego. So that's why I say I, I'm probably a tried and true Californian <laughs> from that perspective. I've, I've literally worked and lived up and down California. Probably um, maybe not that many people can probably kind of say that. Uh, so, so yeah, I've, I've lived most of my life kind of uh, down in Southern California and, and really worked within both, entre- like to your point, entrepreneurship and, and, and venture capital. What did you do for fun as a kid? Like, were you very into sports? Were you in academia? Like, what, what, was, uh, what was life like in, in the early days for Howard? Ha! Uh, it's, it's funny you say that. Uh, look, I, I think I was literally in high school still about five foot, five foot one, <laughs> uh, which made a very interesting dichotomy between you know uh, my favorite sport at the time was basketball right and try to f- basically look at ba- a five foot speedster going around and pestering everybody who's about at least six inches to at least o- o- almost a foot foot and a half taller than you sometimes uh w- w- was an interesting thing so i did refine the hook shot because that was the one way i could actually get over the three-point shot and the hook shot so those are those are the two that I, I figured I had the advantage. Well, it, uh, it, it, over over taller guys. It's interesting you say that because I feel like there's a really good business analogy to that, which is like as a startup, you're always going to be put up against other people that are taller than you, or have more money than you, or more features than you, and you have to find your hook shot. You have to find your area where yeah. you can kind of uh, fit in, even when you are up against the bigger, you know, the bigger opponents. No, absolutely. I, I think yeah. I think that there's a there's a good analogy there, right? Uh, you had to find a way to be competitive. You had to find a, a different angle. Uh, if you couldn't be bigger or stronger than somebody, right? Um, and in the startup uh, landscape, it's if you can't be more well funded than them, right? Uh, you know, how do you still go about kind of competing and competing uh, kind of uh, aggressively? Um, and to some extent, you know, the the other thing I learned is just have to be persistence, right? Um, you know, I, I think. You know, back in the days, I prided myself on being able to run up and down the court more than anybody else could, faster, just longer. I could just last longer, right, than anybody else would. I would be able to kind of have more energy than anybody else would. I think that somewhat correlates to doing being a startup. You just have to have that persistency, and you have to have um, just that energy uh, to be able to kind of put in. You are you going to be able to outwork people? Yeah. Right. Uh, Especially when you're going up against, you know, some 800 pound gorillas. Right. Um, that that may may or may not rely on being more well-funded, being taller, being stronger. Right. And and, and that may be a crutch, mm. I think, to some. Um, but I think as a startup and, you know, back when I was literally five foot and 85 pounds. <laughs> right. Like, you know, how, how do you still compete and effectively not be the last guy being picked on the team? Right. And and, and how do you kind of become kind of still a, a you know, a top two, top three guy that would consistently that everybody would choose, you know, be it from a customer's perspective or even from a basketball team perspective, right? 
and so that that, that there's a correlation, a kind of correlation and corollary kind of there. But fundamentally, it's from a start perspective is you got to find that that thing that makes you different, yeah. that thing that makes you successful, right? I think in the, and being able to adapt, especially in this market, is going to be critically key, right? How do you maneuver without potentially funding? Because now people are always about extending runway. Well, what does that mean? You're cutting resources to all aspects. That could include sales, uh, sales and business development. That include that could include kind of R and D. But how do you find a way to still get it done, right? I think you're going to have to be much more creative and have more ingenuity in order to kind of still get there with potentially less resources. Yeah, I agree. Another analogy that I remember, because I think it's actually similar to hiring too. You know, I, I was having lunch with a mentor and I was saying to him that, you know, it feels so hard to recruit the top, top talent because we don't have the same financial resources to be giving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars away to each of these new members. And he, we were having sushi and he kind of took these two chopsticks and he snapped the end of a chopstick off and said, you know, you will always for the rest of your life as an entrepreneur be competing with people that have more money, the full chopstick. And he took the little chopstick that that kind of he broke off and he said, this is the area that you need to really focus on that makes you different because you'll never be able to compete with them on that exact same level. And so you need to find your way of bringing on great talent or bringing value or, you know, setting them up in a, an environment where they are truly happy to succeed. So uh, I love how you can apply it both to growth as a business, but also hiring, you know, whenever you want to be chosen on any team, you have to find that, that niche to uh, stand out from the crowd. Um, what did you do for, for fun outside of sports? Did you always know that you wanted to go into business and venture capital or did that come like as you got into college and later on in life? Yeah, look, I, I was an entrepreneur engineer, right? So, so, so I'm still kind of a geek and nerd at heart, right? We, we still like to tinker kind of with things, right? I, my focus was in semiconductors and wireless optics. And I also did some research uh, uh, in laser oncology kind of back when I was in college. Interesting. Um, so it was, there was always, you know, I, I've always been interested, uh, I think, on, on the technical side kind of things. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, as I kind of got into uh, kind of professional life, right? Uh, I, while, while I was in college, I actually did an internship at Northrop Grumman on the aerospace side. We were doing kind of very interesting uh, black projects. We were doing kind of the fighter, uh, kind of fighter jet projects and whatnot. Um, and certain projects that, I, that that will remain unnamed for now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I think, you know, as I transitioned out of, actually out of, out of college, um, I actually did investment banking, technology investment yeah, banking, yeah. tech banking. At Sal- Salomon Smith Barney, yeah, yeah. At Salomon Barney, kind of uh, back before they all, you know, they 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 kind of transformed themselves into Citigroup Investment Banking now. Um, but you know, I I went into finance, I think, fairly early on, but still in more of a technical bent, right? We were still looking, you know, back in those days at semiconductor companies. Right. Um, and wireless technology companies taking them public, doing uh, mergers and acquisitions and kind of whatnot. Um, I, I didn't I didn't frankly back in those days, uh, I, I knew nothing about venture capital. Um, I, you know, I, you know, I, I barely knew investment banking. Um, I think, you know, back in those days, I was uh, what I was interested in was more stock investments. Right. I, I actually ran a stock investment club uh, back when I was at UCLA. And, you know, I, I remember. 
um, having kind of uh, 400 to 500 students in one of those classes that, that I gave uh, kind of a, a, a lecture about uh, how to do investments, how do you evaluate uh, kind of stocks and whatnot. Um, so that that's kind of how I got into quote unquote the finance side. Mm. But frankly, I didn't really know about investment banking or venture capital uh, until I kind of took a job um, at, at at Solomon. Um, and you know, I think towards the end of that, call it two year. It's a very you know kind of structured um, kind of program there. It's a two year to three year type of um, analyst um, kind of uh, program. And you can decide what you want to do then. Um, and that's kind of when I learned, I think, more about you know, kind of the investment side. And that's when I kind of did my first foray um, into venture capital. I think, to be honest, I think in retrospect, man, did I not know, know a lot. Uh, you, you think you knew a lot kind of at that point in time. But in retrospect, you, you, you start realizing how much you didn't know. Um, you know, kind of in my first stint there. Uh, so yeah, it's a it was a learning process. I didn't know kind of I was going to do venture capital. Frankly, back in those days, venture capital wasn't as well known a, a, as it is now. Um, when you know venture now is as prolific as you know going to get bank financing um, at, at the Small Business Administration at the SBA. Um, so it, it's been an evolution. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't start out put it this way, you know, when I was in high school, I'm going to be a venture capitalist or, or even in college, frankly, I just didn't know enough about the industry. What, what changed your mind or like, at what point was there a specific person that you met that you thought like, wow, this is actually really cool or a mentor? What, what was the moment that you really decided this was going to be a life passion of yours? I'd say probably when I... After after I had the, being the entrepreneur myself, being the founder myself, I did, I did two stints in venture capital. I did a stint kind of uh, right after uh, my tech investment banking um, down in San Diego. At, was um, that at Mission? At Mission, at Mission Ventures. Um, so I did, and so that was my first foray kind of into venture. Um, I think it was a it, it was a it was a crash course, frankly, on principal investing. Um, and the the bubble had just burst, right? There was a bunch of um, Series A recaps at the mm. time, right? Um, and, and you had companies going through workouts and, and whatnot. So it was a really interesting time to be in venture. I think most of the venture capitalists these days, especially the, the ones who haven't seen that uh, the previous cycle, um, you've only seen kind of the boom times, right? Um, in terms of kind of the markets kind of going up. But it was a very interesting kind of dynamic um, when you were on kind of the, not the downside, but certainly it was more like the Arctic winter of investments for, for a while. Um, and so I got my first taste there, but I really, it was very, for me, it was very, um, uh, it's very good to learn that aspect of it in terms of what an investor would look for, because that served me well, frankly, when I ended up doing my own startup. Um, kind of um, a few years down the road. I actually did that startup when I was at business school at UCLA. Um, and it provided an additional, I think, perspective there in terms of you know what we should be focusing on. Should we be focusing on how, how do you productize technology? Tech for the sake of tech isn't really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this coming, from the, this coming from an electrical engineer myself, right? It, it's at some point you're like, hey, that's a really cool concept. That's a really cool way. But in the business world, in the startup landscape, to get to that end goal, tech for the sake of tech really isn't interesting. How you basically prioritize that tech, how you actually turn that tech into a business, 
uh, is really what different differentiate between research and a business mm. and a company, right? And I think those are good learnings. Um, I think in terms of kind of building that kind of startup, uh, I did that start with two PhD CS guys uh, out of UCLA, um, and, and and you know how do you take that into something that fits a market need, right? Now the um, and, and I think oh I'm sorry I didn't mean to go no ahead. keep going keep going. No, so so I think I was just and and, and from there we were able to kind of build something and, and to and going back to the, to your kind of question about kind of you know how did you know that venture capital um, would be a kind of a passion? I think it was after that when I said okay, so when we when we kind of when we were able to kind of um, kind of exit kind of from there, um, I joined up with the team um, kind of at Morpheus and. Even the first few years, I'm like, okay, I, you know, I, I, I think I want to go back into kind of the investing, uh, investing side. Um, but I really didn't have that passion yet for that. But I think after I did it for a few more years where I was able to now leverage, I think, the experience that I had as an entrepreneur, as a founder, right? Um, that really, I think, ignited that passion for it because I, I thought I could be much more helpful than, frankly, the first time around. The first time around, I didn't have any operating experience. Um, but this time around, I had both those perspectives, right, uh, both operationally as well as from the investment side. And it felt that I could actually help the founders, I think, a lot more in terms of both perspective as as well as empathy. I think there's this mm -hmm. bit of empathy that I think, and whether that is you know, that you can put in practice or not. But I think having that fundamental empathy that belies kind of how you interact, I think, with your founders and, and whatnot, I, I think it, it, it you can't really just learn that, right? Or you can't really just uh, kind of express that to some extent if you haven't really lived it um, and, and kind of felt it yeah. uh, kind of from before because you've been there and you've been in those shoes, right? Trying to build a team, sell that product, get the first customer uh, type of thing. So, and, and the challenges that, that go along with it. Um, so I think that's when I think that passion for it really started growing. So yeah, this is, this is the place that, you know, I, I think I can uh, have a lot of, a lot of impact and do a lot of good, I think with the companies that we get involved with. Yeah. I, I was interviewing another CEO and we were talking about the concept of passion and, and he said something really interesting that he believes that, you know, people are not born with passion for any, uh, for any one particular thing, but that passion comes through commitment and that the more you commit yourself and the more longevity you commit yourself to any given thing, that your passion comes from the mastery, from continuing to get better and better. And that, um, you know, that, that passion really comes. And I, I could imagine for you, the deeper you get into it, the more startups that you're helping both, you know, psychologically as well as financially that can probably create this amazing positive feedback loop where you want to get, you want to do more of it. You want to help more people. Oh yeah. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, as the years have gone on, right. I think I'm, I'm probably more passionate about it now than I was even years ago. Yeah. Right. Because to your point, um, I think you get more of that feedback loop, right. That, that, that it does, it, you know, it does matter. Right, uh, that that you are uh, that you are helping, um, and even the companies that you know that that 
pitched to me all the time. I think even if we are not investors kind of in them, right? I think there's a, there's a bit of connection that you always do still have. Yeah. I, I think we're founders, right? At a minimum. And, 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 you know, we always try at least certainly I always try to at least impart, uh, you know, some perspective that might be helpful, I, I think, for the founders and the uh, for the founders and the company, even if we do not invest, uh, because you still feel that I think kinship, right? Um, that 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 you know, on, on, an entrepreneur will always be an entrepreneur, yeah. Uh, kind of at, at some point going forward, uh, and there's always that that kinship that always fundamentally kind of is there, uh, no matter what. And I think that's that's what you know makes Morpheus so interesting. I I remember listening on one of your podcasts talking that many of the team are are operational founders. They have been in those shoes before and you know I think that kinship you're talking about comes from like you've been in the dirt. You know exactly what it's like, you know and and um you know even when you say no, you've also gotten yourself had people say no to you. So I I think it it really is a uh, it's an amazing ecosystem uh to 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 support. Um can you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be a principal at a VC fund, because we've had managing directors, we've had partners, we've had associates. Um, I think that yep. uh, talking more about like, what does it mean to be a principal? And in your opinion, what makes a great principal at a VC fund? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, and I think it's going to really depend on, I think, from firm to firm, right? I think everybody's kind of structure is always a little bit different. Um, I think for us, it's really, you know, as, at least at a, as a principal at, at Morpheus, I think the 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 focus is, you know, to 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 find kind of really good companies mm. um, that you kind of want to invest with, and and really take them through the entire process, and really also work with them on, on, on you know post investment, right? Um, I, I think we, there's a uh, we have the responsibility of really the end to end. Um, uh, type of thing, right? Um, and I think, you know, at, at least at our firm, I think there's a lot of those uh, kind of responsibilities that that get put on us, um, and, and and that is expected of us, and and we also expect that for ourselves. Really, really is, you know, a company that 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 we really kind of take through the process. We really have ownership kind of of them, right? And, and we feel a certain responsibility to make sure that once they're once you're in as a portfolio company, we do everything that we can. Um, to really support them to kind of get to an ultimate kind of outcome, mm-hmm. right? That 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 is that everybody kind of uh, kind of gets in for. So I think I think at least at, at Morpheus, I think you know on the principal level, we do have um, kind of end to end kind of visibility and responsibility um, uh, from from a sourcing all the way to support kind of thereafter. Um, I think we, as a principal here, um, you know, we sit on a multiple kind of um, boards uh, of companies. Um, I sit on myself, I think uh, right now, uh, th- three of the boards and uh, in, in Morpheus uh, portfolio companies. Um, and so we really do have that responsibility kind of um, that we still take on post-investment. Now, when I was listening to, I, I believe it was the puck or I can't remember exactly which podcast that you were on. It was filmed two years ago. And at the time you were saying that, you know, Morpheus didn't really have any particular thesis or you, you know, you guys had Hyperloop was an investment and you also had, uh, you know, autonomous and you also had CRMs and you all, uh, do you still uh, abide by that kind of like, you know, no one startup is the perfect fit for you? Or have you guys shifted your um, uh, investment style over the last couple of years? Well, I think our fundamental thesis, it has always been around scalability, mm. right? I, do, 
do do opportunities do these companies have the potential to scale meaningfully um, kind of within their respective sectors um, I think we're still kind of uh, quote unquote vertical agnostic right um, but I do think that we're still seeking those companies that can be impactful and difference makers within their respective verticals right um, and fundamentally I think we we take we have the perspective of really backing founders, right? And backing kind of management teams as a core thesis of kind of what we do. And so from that, from that standpoint, if you just combine the found, like a founding thesis of saying, look, it's, it's gotta be a scalable type company, scalable type business, mm. and really backing the, the, the founders. We, we find that that naturally kind of coalesces into just it, like kind of good opportunities. And, and we won't want to kind of, um, kind of prevent ourselves from investing in certain areas just simply because it's not quote unquote a thesis point um, type of thing. Um, the way the way certainly I look at it is businesses are still fundamental, uh, kind of fundamental energy in a sense that they should serve a purpose, right? Is there a utility function that they're providing that me is meeting a need, mm. right? And, and And if there's, no matter what industry you're in, I think the only industry that we're not in, frankly, I think is bio, kind of biotech. We're not in biopharma. We don't have enough PhDs on our staff to be able to evaluate that properly. Um, but, at the, but at least quite a bit of, of, of space, right, for us to participate with. And, and the way I look at it is you know, it's fundamental. If you can provide a utility function that serves a need and you have a business model, a unit economics model that makes sense, right, we'll take a look. Right. Because fundamentally, you can at least break down all businesses, at least or most businesses into those two key kind of fundamental premises. Right. And, and so that I think that's still the guiding kind of guiding light and guiding framework mm. that in general that, that we're still going to be focused on. Um, so that may be from you know autonomous kind of uh, delivery with uh, with Starship um, all the way to, um, you know, Digital life insurance with Visto or healthcare insurance with Sidecar, they're all fundamental in terms of kind of what utility that they provide, and those are very very large markets that they're all um, all of them are attacking, right? Um, and so we still see that as uh, a, a, a fundamental framework. So we're not going to kind of preclude any specific kind of sectors. Mm -hmm. um, I think. We pride ourselves on, on being able to kind of get up to speed uh, and certainly have the network of, uh, of relationships where we can call on specific kind of industry experts and domain experts to help us, I think, vet, um, especially the more technical um, kind of deeper tech investments. Um, but a lot of times, you know, like I told you before, you know, tech for the sake of tech isn't that interesting, right? Tech with a business model, tech that fits a need. Um, that I think fundamentally is, uh, can be diligenced, right? Uh, can be understood. Um, and, and whatnot. So, so we still kind of go within that confines. Within within the context of you know that as long as they're serving a great problem, and as long as you see this, you know how 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 they could potentially scale. Are there any types of companies or types of verticals that you just personally really love, like that just get you really excited? I, I know things like the Hyperloop was something where they could they could be like a B2C company. They could also be a commercial play. Are there any um, companies and or verticals that you personally just really uh, are interested and fascinated by? Yeah, it's funny. It's it's uh, This coming from the engineer is going to be pretty interesting, which is, uh, you know, I love the technology kind of aspect of it, um, but it, the, the industries that I actually like, um, the thematic that I, that, 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 that I like uh, a lot these days is logistics, like things like logistics, 
right? It's a very large industry and it's fundamentally haven't gone through a lot of innovation kind of even within those industries themselves, right? And, and we look at logistics and certainly I look at logistics uh, on a broader, uh, broader scope basis. It's not just about trucking FTL or LTL. It's really the point at which it leaves the manufacturer um, and, and all the way through the journey to the end user. And that end user could be a consumer and or a business, mm. right? So literally it could be from you know, uh, ocean freight shipping to uh, port management, uh, to warehouse management, um, all the way down to last mile delivery that, for example, Starship is in, right? Um, and so I think we look at that as a cohesive and it could be literally software that is, you know, warehouse management software, right? It doesn't have to be just the mobility and transportation kind of aspect of things, right? So that, when utilizing technology to solve a business problem is really what gets me, I think, more excited, right? Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, how that really transform how we work and how the the the, the entirety of the markets work and more efficiently, um, I think that's a, a huge aspect. Logistics would, for example, impact agriculture and food, right? How do you actually, you can actually, if you get a, a better system in place, I reduce a lot of spoilers. I reduce a lot of, um, uh, 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 farm to farm to table aspect of things. We do. You can feed more people, right? And you can actually kind of get more dollars kind of into to the growers. It, it impacts an economy as a whole, which is what I love about kind of logistics industry, where it could be. It touches almost all aspects of our lives in different ways. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah. Like uh, I. So that's one area. I loved what you were talking about. How like if you know, how could we use freeways and highways for more green opportunities or green tech? Not like, like if we were to change the way we do transportation, how does that then impact the thing, how things have been done over the last 10 years? And what could, what's the opportunity cost really? Like what, what are the things that we could be doing uh, if we rethink the way, whether it's through autonomous vehicles or that last mile transportation? So it's really cool to think about like, what an impact could be made with more space and and how like some of these businesses even though they don't they don't seem like logistics companies would have an impact over here they actually do have such a global impact uh, you know in so many different sectors yep absolutely um when it comes to the amount of investments that morpheus makes do you guys follow any sort of you know, premise like we always invest in five companies a year or 20 companies a year, or has it has it kind of changed year to year? I think it depends. I think, you know, there's no hard and fast rules, right? I think uh, for us, it's really about finding um, really great companies. Um, and, and I think if you just look at kind of historically, I think we've been on pace, call it between six to eight um, kind of investments, new investments per year. Yeah, but that can you know potentially flex to six to ten, mm-hmm. right? Type of thing. Um, it just depends. I think you know you may have slow you know years where uh, you find a, re- a lot of really good investments, uh, and, and and we're not gonna you know just say because we hit our cap, we're not gonna invest in the next great one, right? Um, I think there's, I think it's really about still finding the the, the really great companies. Um, so we're not there's no hard and fast rules at least at, at Morpheus uh, in terms of. 
how quickly or how slowly um, that 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 we uh, find companies. Um, it's it's more like let's just find great companies and let's take it from there. Knowing that, uh, you know, of course, like our hearts go out to everyone sick and affected negatively by the times that we're currently in right now. But kind of taking that aside, do you see this time as like this is the moment where you know? like the ingenuity and the and the creativity of entrepreneurs is really going to show like are are you optimistic in this current time about the types of startups that you'll be meeting in the next 2 to 6 months um maybe I, I don't think it's a matter of just going to the next 2 to 6 months but i think you know times like this um i think will allow those companies who really have strong leadership um, and a strong potential product market fit, I think, to shine, mm. right? I think there's there's always been a, a discussion about um, there's a vast pool of venture capital that's available. There's a call it the overhang, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of money being raised by venture funds and whatnot. And there's, so there's a lot of just capital, you know, at play, right? Um, and and that to some extent, sometimes, you know, you're certain companies that uh, probably wouldn't get funded in, in a normalized environment or, or in a down environment that, that, you know, we may or may not be entering into. Um, those companies that are able to survive, I think, you know, this period of time, right? Um, it's, you know, Darwinism at its best, right? Survival of the fittest here. Uh, we'll probably kind of be in a better position um, kind of going forward when, when this kind of all passes, yeah. right? Um, and, and, you know, I think for a couple of reasons. One, there's going to be the competitive landscape. There's going to be a lot less noise potentially, right? In, 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 in the areas that they're, that they're playing in, right? There's not going to be as many companies potentially um, that are, are pitching the, the, their customers, right? Uh, about, hey, they, uh, they also have a solution. Right now, you, you find yourself sometimes just trying to break through the noise, right? Because so many companies are saying and pitching the same mm -hmm. thing to the same set of customers, right? Uh, you may be able to, you know, have a, a different level set kind of, you know, uh, you know, in these type of down environments where the, the guys who don't have this strong product and market fit aren't, you know, kind of crowding the marketplace with noise uh, type of thing. And, and also this also provides an opportunity where a lot of times you have a dilution of talent pool, right, um, across a lot of different companies. Uh, and, and, and there's opportunities where now there's a there's a cool uh, kind of coalescence potentially of the strong getting stronger right the 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 potentially a, 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 an opportunity for better talent to be added to the survivors right yeah. so, so talent begets talent right and so you may have a, a position where the better companies that are still going to be funded that have a better kind of product market fit potential getting even stronger from a bench perspective yeah, right yeah they can add better talent right and that probably also uh, kind of creates even more separation between kind of quote unquote the more potential market leaders uh, uh, kind of, and then next and that next level uh, of competitors. yeah so, yeah there's definitely an opportunity there. Yeah, it's it's like, I mean, I'm even finding myself right now, you know, bird, major layoffs, patient pop, major layoff, like a lot of these incredible companies, you're starting to see, you know, hundreds of, of uh, new talent that is coming into the marketplace. And uh, it, it is a really, you know, it's a unique atmosphere. And I don't know if it was John Doerr who said it, but I, I know it was in his book, uh, Measure What Matters, where he said, you know, in a down economy or in a really tough times, you know, uh, bad companies are going to die, 
good companies are going to survive and great companies are going to thrive. You know, and I think that's kind of like what you were just saying. Um, the, the great companies will gr- become even greater faster and the poor companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that's a good thing for, you know, for the like it's it's such a weird mentality, but it's kind of like natural selection of business. Is, is that a good thing for the economy or a bad thing for the economy? Look, I think in all economies, you, you want to have businesses that actually do work. Right, that that work for a reason. That there, there's a reason for them to exist, right? And that they are well run, right? Because those are the companies that yeah. you know have lasting impacts that can grow economies, right? That can grow. Like you want the companies to go from twenty to fifty to a hundred to five hundred to a thousand employees, right? It's those type of companies that will build that that will be the bedrock mm. and the foundation for the economies moving forward. You do not want to have a ton of fragile companies, right? For for example, for example, you get another instance like this, and you have a if you if all you have in your economy are effectively fragile companies, right? That are barely subsisting, right? When a wave like this hits, it could be a total wipeout, right? Whereas if you do have stronger and better positioned companies with really strong proposition and well run, they have lasting power. Right, they potentially can can survive through this and and potentially thrive through this because you do need those bedrock foundations to come out the other side, right? You don't want companies to all of a sudden tip over, right? Um, very easily. If you have a lot of those, especially in these type of um, circumstances, especially in bad markets, right? Um, you don't want to have an overall economy that just you know is always at the point of a failure right you do need those bedrock type companies to be able to sustain yourself through these type of times yeah and i i think that like as you're saying that my mind just keeps going back to what you said a couple minutes ago which is technology for the sake of technology who cares right it's like the it's showing that if you're solving a real problem and that problem is led with the right leadership team then those companies are going to survive and if you're just building tech for the sake of building tech, but not actually solving a problem. Those are the more insta- you know, instable companies that could potentially, you know, uh, vanish. So it, it's really interesting to kind of, you know, hear your perspective on and then see it almost playing out right in front of us. Yep. When you make an investment in a startup, is there like a right fit for you guys? I know that you are, um, uh, for for the most part, industry agnostic. Uh, maybe a better a better way of saying it is is what are the green flags or the things that you look for in a company that you feel is scalable or you feel is going to be a success? Look, I, I think I think almost every VC will will say this, um, but I think it's founders first, founders second, founders third, mm. right? I, I think I think it's it's really about people, um, especially since we're still. Um, fundamentally uh, kind of at the earlier stages or earlier stages in terms of investment where we're not, you know, we, we, we don't do a lot of C's and D's investments type of thing, uh, series C's and D's investments. Um, so a lot of times you're still at formative stages, right? Um, a potentially early product market fit, right? Uh, and, and there's going to be bumps along the way. Um, there's going to be pivot points along the way, um, you know, but can that management team kind of manage throughout? Um, and, and so that's, I think, those I think the founders piece, the management piece, is is a very part, is a very big part uh, of kind of um, 
that puzzle that we're trying to kind of put together. Yeah. Right. Obviously, I think the market, you know, the market sizing needs to be there. The product market fit, you know, hopefully is there. Um, but I think without the founders, if we can't get comfortable, I think on the founders management team, regardless of how potentially large the opportunity is, I, I think it would be hard pressed for us to kind of move forward with the investment. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, how about on the flip side of it? Like, and actually before asking about the flip side and in, in the red flags, I know that you said like founders first, founders second, founders third, uh, to dig like one level underneath that, is there a particular personality trait or things that like when you meet a founder and what, what's the aha moment for you? Is it usually tied to their own personality and how you interact with them personally, or is it tied to metrics or what, how do you like dig into the founder, founder, founder? Yeah. And I think it's going to also depend on the type of companies that they're building, right? Mm. Uh, if it's, if, it, if it's deeper tech versus execution kind of oriented businesses, right? Um, and I think on, on, if you're looking at a deeper tech, uh, type company, you do want that founder to have that technical kind of capability and that ca a, a technical insight, right? And be a, a thought leader and potentially visionary in, in their respective um, sectors, right? Uh, and so there's, there, I think, you know, you, you almost have to separate that. And it also depends on the stage of the company that you're investing at that time, right? Are they still in more R&D mode or they're in kind of growth mode um, you know, type of thing? So I, I think, what you're seeking from a founder's perspective might be different from a skill set perspective, mm. right? Uh, type of thing. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, there, there are a few traits that you're always looking for, right? Uh, I think what you're looking for is a founder that, that is just, you know, that they're, you get the sense that they will persevere through, right? They will go through that brick wall, even if they know that the brick wall is there, right? And, and it's hard to quantify that, right? I think it's hard to quantify that um, in any specific kind of checklist methodology, yeah. right? Uh, but I think it's it's a sense that you get after, after we, spend, we try to spend as much time with the founders before we even submit a term sheet um, to, to really try to get that sense. And certainly after the term sheet, we're still spending quite a bit of time to make sure that hey, this is substantiating and validating kind of what our thoughts are before. It's really that get to know you moment. It's there's a lot of shotgun weddings that happen mm -hmm. sometimes in venture capital, right? Um, but we try, we do try to spend as much time with them. It's harder now. I think the in-person stuff, I think is really important for that. You can only get so much yeah. virtually, but even virtually, you, you do try to spend as much time as you can um, to fundamentally suss that out. Um, but you also want them to be able to make the calls, right? Can can that um, founder really make those hard decisions and, and when there is imperfect information, right? Um, be it from a marketing perspective or be it from a personnel perspective, mm. right? Can they make those hard decisions? Because those hard decisions are going to happen. Do you have enough confidence, confidence in them that they will make the hard decisions, um, but also make those hard decisions with good rationale and good reason, right? It's not just about being dogmatic about certain aspects. Look, you can be dogmatic, it's fine. I think you do want to have a certain amount of that persistency, yeah. right? But, but but you don't want to get so dogmatic uh, and, and kind of about it where you're ignoring you're uh, data points, right? right? right. Like kind of other, other distinctive market data points, personnel data points, or even data points that others have gone, that have gone through that, you know, can provide. 
right? And so being able to coalesce that and but still fundamentally make a, an informed decision, I think that's a that's a big thing. And 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 the ability to also just be, you know, kind of honest and transparent, right? And and being able to just not be fearful of saying I failed, yeah. right? And that this is a, a weakness of of mine, and and I do need to improve there. Uh, and be able to take ownership thereof, because to some extent, as a board, as a board member, we can only be helpful if we know the problem exists, mm-hmm. right? And there's a reason why you want us kind of to be to be there on the board is that you're hoping that we can be helpful uh, at those critical moments, right? Um, but we're not going to be able to be as effective if if the the transparency and that you're you're not able to feel secure in yourself to be able to say, look. I don't, I don't know what to do here, right? Can you help? Yeah. Right. Can you, can you provide some guidance and be able to be, have that vulnerability and be able to be securing yourself to be able to do that, right? And so, it's not so much personality traits as it is, I, I think it's empathy, you know, you know, right? I, I guess it's like part personality, part skill set, part self realization. I think it's all kind of, all of it kind of has to come together to some degree. Right. Um, um, so, so like I said, there's no, there's no kind of perfect person that you're drawing up in your mind what a perfect CEO yeah. is. It's like an orchestra. You're you're balancing different levers and it and it all kind of is case by case. Uh yeah, that I, I totally understand what you mean. What about red flags? Like what what about areas that immediately you feel are either something that you won't invest in or kind of uh rubs you the wrong way or like in, in what scenario uh, are there red flags in founders that you try to avoid? Oh yeah, I, I think I, I sort of touched on it before, which is look, the honesty and transparency, right? Own that you don't know. If you don't know, say you don't know, right? I, I've been in a lot of pitches where I think you know potential founders try to gloss over certain things, right, and, and, and just spit out something that you know it's patently just not true, mm-hmm. right? Or, or 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 even a simple Google search could pretty much invalidate that right type of thing yeah and so and i think that's the big piece i think for at least for me uh and really because it's a partnership right um and 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 that honesty and transparency uh is a huge aspect of it right i think it's you know do you want to be in the foxhole with that guy when when when, uh when uh you know things hit the fan right um and you know you want to be you want to be able to trust that person so that you can give them the best kind of advice guidance as possible. Uh, and that you want to go to up to bat for them. Right. Type of thing. Um, so that's, I think that's a, that's a, I think that's a big aspect of it. And, and to some extent, uh, also the other portion is, you know, don't bullshit a bullshit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Or for a lack of a better term. Right. Uh, yeah. I think, I think venture capitalists, if nothing else, uh, they collect a lot of information. Right, uh, you know, and 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 uh, we hear a lot, we see a lot, and whatever the case may be, uh, and, and we all talk a good game, um, type of thing. Um, going back to the thing, if you don't know, don't know. Say, look, well, I'll get back to you on. Yeah. It. Right. Um, and 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 if you're trying to put yourself as an expert on something, make sure you're an expert on something, right? And and I, and and I take the example of if I can do a Google search and I can get to an answer, and you can't give me that answer straight up, then you're not an expert in that specific mm-hmm. field, right? So, so own the knowledge that you have. Really be knowledgeable about what you say you're knowledgeable about, right? And, and be able to kind of 
kind of present that um, and, and whatnot. So to, to me, those two aspects of things kind of sort of go hand in hand. Um, but those are, for me at least, kind of red flags that I always, uh, that I always look out for. Yeah. And I loved you on a, on an earlier podcast, you talked about being an expert on your market domain and it's not just about having baseline knowledge. You have to go two levels, three levels, four levels deeper. And if you're not that, if you're not on that level, then, um, you know, questions and, and kind of as a venture capitalist, as you're digging in, they sort of pop up and to the surface. And so really, uh, you know, being that domain expert, uh, it, it, it obviously um, is such an important aspect because, you, as you said, don't bullshit a bullshitter. Like you're gonna get you're gonna get caught or you're gonna get found out uh, eventually. Yeah. Yep. No. 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 Absolutely. And look, I have a I have a single premise. I invest in people smarter than myself, right? And and, and if I know more about your more about your industry and your product, something's wrong because I know I shouldn't be mm. the, the one running the company. Yeah. So fundamentally, they really do need to know more about it. Uh, and, and you're fundamentally relying on that, I think, as an investor, is that they are the experts expert. This is more of a personal question and kind of like uh, timely right now. Like, how do you have the same conviction in investing in an entrepreneur when we have to do things digitally like this? Like, do, has when you're up at night, like, do you do you question yourself? Or like, are you able to maintain the same level of uh, you know, conviction and confidence in your in your investments when you're not able to go grab a coffee or you know, kind of be physically in the same space. W what's that been like for you? And maybe what advice do you have for other venture capitalists that are starting to get to this new normal of you know making hard decisions based on digital interactions? Well, I think for if it's if it's current portfolio companies, I think you 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 have a bit of a crutch uh, from before. Totally. Right? Oh yeah. You, totally. You, 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 like, it's a, it's a lot easier. I think that's when all the time you've put in beforehand, um, kind of with the company, with the founders, right? I think you're you're you can lean on yeah. that um, kind of quite a bit, right? And that that rapport and that trust factor that that you've built, I, I think you know over over time. Um, I think you're you're really leaning on that pretty heavy right now, right? Um, because you you may or may not be able to kind of see them in person or really kind of have those engagements. Um, that it may elucidate a little bit more about where the company is. You're, you're trusting the fact that they they know what they're what what the circumstances are at the company and kind of what they're telling you um, is is all about board and whatnot. So you're leaning on that for I think existing portfolio companies. But I do think I think for new companies and I think there's a demarcation line for I think for the new companies. Um, and and I've seen this with just in the past few weeks, uh, even the conversation I've had with other venture capitalists. Uh, and also the kind of companies that we're currently evaluating. There are companies that you literally met before this, right? Let's say, because this this is still fairly recent. Yeah. I think there's a, big, there's a lot of recency bias here, right? This has only really been around for about three weeks, right. right? Right. And so there are companies that you literally have met with in person prior to this, right? That that you're still potentially in diligence mode yeah. uh, uh, for right now. And I do think that, you know, for at least those type of companies, there's an added benefit of the fact that you've actually met the person, um, you know, in person, you met the founder in person kind of prior. But certainly for, I think for the ones that you're just starting the conversation with, I think now, I think there is a bit of new perspective, right? And, 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 and a new norm of engagement, right? And, and to some extent, I think it's still 
pretty early on to see kind of how this is going to fan out, right? Um, you know, I think you're, you're, you're certainly going to see less of those, uh, you know, 48-hour turnarounds for a term sheet, uh, I think, in this market, right? Um, and, and just because it's, it's hard to kind of get a feel for it. Uh, but I, I do think that it's going to take maybe another week or two when, when people start thinking about whether or not they want to submit a term sheet to a company they only met virtually. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and they haven't really met in person in, at some point. Right. Look, a lot of these early conversations are all virtual anyways that most VCs have. It's a, it's a conference call. It's a video conference call. Um, for the first initial meeting. So that's not, that that fundamentally doesn't really change. So if you talk to a lot of guys, that piece of it hasn't really kind of been as impacted, right? I think it's as, as when you get deeper, further in diligence, yeah. deeper in diligence, when you get closer to having those decision points, right? Do, are you a little bit more reticent about making that final conviction? Yeah, yet, right, right. right. And, and, I don't think I think we're still relatively early. I think yeah. I'll ask you again that, in a month. We'll see. We'll see how you right, feel in a month. If you literally ask me this four weeks from now, right? I may I may have different perspective. Kind of you know if we were able to get there or we haven't been able to get get there yet. Um, I think to, to some extent it is too soon for for people to figure out if they can fundamentally get there, and it's getting there on. You know, $100,000 investment is very different from getting there from a $5 million yeah. investment. Well, relative to obviously your fund size and whatnot um, uh, um, type of thing. But it is going to be different, right? If you're committing, you know, potentially 5% you know, of your entire fund to, to, you know, to one investment or, you know, 2% of your entire fund to one investment, that makes a difference between or versus if you're committing, you know, 100, you know, you know, 0.1% right. uh, of your investment. I think, I think that will also kind of guide, you know, how much conviction you can sort of need to kind of get over on, on an investment. Yeah. Be, like we had, uh, we had Yi uh, Peng Zhao on from Embark, Embark Ventures, you know, a couple months ago. And he talked about how venture capitalists have such a difficult job and I said, Epang, come on, man, you know, you guys just give away money to people like what's so tough about that? And he said, no, no, like follow me here. He said, when you have a product or a service as an entrepreneur, it's almost like a badge of honor when you fail and come back again. But when you're a venture capitalist, you you have no room to lose a fund. If you lose your first fund or you lose your second fund, like getting your next fund made is such a difficult because all you have is your reputation as a venture capitalist and, and your successes. So I could imagine like in your position, making these like final sign check decisions at the very final one yard line has got to be, you know, uh, like exciting and nerve wracking and all of these emotions, because for the newer people that you've never met before, they may come to you with great tech that solves a great problem and they've got numbers to back it up, but there's still that, little bit of that human connection that you just can't get through a computer. So uh, I definitely will follow up with you next month or maybe in three months and see how your, uh, see how your perspective has changed. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he has, I think has great perspective on that. Uh, and, and 
next time I see him, I, I, I'll make sure that uh, you know we, we have this discussion on this and see how see how things turn out. Cool, I love that. That's awesome. Uh, what what is a typical day like for you as a VC? Like, what what is a normal day for a principal at a VC fund look like? Ha! Huh. You know the funny thing is, uh, three weeks ago it would be a different day to day than than day to day today. Uh, frankly, um, I think day to day, I would still say like a lot of this is really still meeting with and, and, and whether it's before or after this, I think we probably squeeze more things in these days just because, well, your office is literally a foot away from. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so, so the, especially in L.A., right, the commute times, like you know, the, the two hours I spend on the road, all of a sudden, hey, I got that two hours back. Yeah. essentially, I, I don't have to cut off certain things at certain times. Um, that's, I guess that's a good and bad thing. Uh, and you can ask my wife about that. I, I'm, I'm not sure she, she, she totally loves that piece of it. Um, but I think on a day-to-day basis, I think a lot of our time is really spent on really talking um, with entrepreneurs and also talking with other investors. Um, and, and, and a good chunk of our time, obviously, now, especially given the environment that we're in, um, we're spending a lot of time with our portfolio companies. Um, and usually a lot of times you're spending your portfolio companies on kind of heavy intensive time you spend on portfolio is usually when they're out for finance or they're getting ready for financing, right? Um, because you're you're really trying to help them both from a relationship connection perspective to the next round of capital um, and or you're just really helping them trying to refine that pitch, mm. right? Uh, refine the messaging and whatnot because we're, we are the other side to some degree, right? Um, and, and trying to help them kind of navigate that process a bit more. But certainly, I think in this environment, we're also trying to to do that as well as all the all the externalities that now are impacting the company. Uh, and, and so we're we're really working with them. So, for example, I think we gave a a webinar just last week on kind of doing access to government finance, government funding, right, with all different programs because there's a lot of nebulousness that's still out there. Um, there's a you know type of thing, and still I think that's still evolving a bit, right, in terms of um, kind of know who and uh, who can access it and whatnot um so really trying to still help them with that so we've been spending quite a bit of time uh, with our portfolio companies probably even more these days from at least the number of portfolio companies that you're working with uh you know more intensively right now basically every one of our portfolio companies (laughs) across the board versus one or two that you know that you're really kind of uh, priming up because they're going into there's well, at least more staging right um, for companies who are uh, going to go up for financing. Um, so right now we're probably I'd say at least 50% of my time or, or more is really working on portfolio companies, um, and then the other piece is just um, looking at uh, new deals. And we have a couple of deals that we're working through right now. One, you know, we we have a deal under term sheet um, we're working through right now. Uh, we are we have a couple that are in later stages. Of, of diligence and then also obviously looking at um, kind of new deal opportunities. Mm. So it's still, it, it, at least for us, I think we're still fairly active. Um, we haven't kind of, you know, bunkered in and just, you know, are waiting it out for three months um, because we actually do believe in I think, great companies um, being created uh, in difficult environments. Yeah. Um, and potentially, you know, potentially to your point earlier, the great companies could even be greater, um, I think, in this environment. Yeah, it's it's interesting what you said about the kind of work from home and 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 you know how your your wife uh, uh, you know the difference between like people that consider themselves to be very hard workers you know get up early get into the office go to the gym you know uh, I read this article recently that that said something to the effect of 
we shouldn't be worried about unproductivity. We should be worried about burnout that like in some situations in this environment, like because you don't have those like, oh, well, I've got to leave, you know, at 630 to get home by 8 p.m. or whatever. And especially in Los Angeles, you're having, you know, and I I definitely uh, can visualize this myself. I mean, you know, my days are now starting much closer to 6 a.m. as opposed to 830 when I'm getting into the office and, you know, they're going later because, hey, I'm working. And and so I, I do think it's interesting. Do you have a perspective on, you know, founder burnout, how to avoid founder burnout, especially in circumstances like this? Yeah, I, I do think that there is, I think, a potential burnout. I think I even see it in myself, right? I think to some extent, um, you know, I've had, I think the past two weeks, literally almost every day, back to back calls, I, I literally maybe have 15 20 minutes being in between yeah. calls uh, if they, yeah uh, or if they're just yeah, really, me too. I, you know i'm pushing into the next call um and, and so and and you know that's just calls right you're still you still have things that you have to do uh, you know emails and, and and actually kind of you know the investment diligence and all that stuff that you're still pouring through kind of uh, kind of later in the day because you're literally on calls during the day um so i i, I definitely see that there is um a potential for burnout there. Even for myself, I have to kind of right now be a little bit more regimented, uh, I, I think, and, and build some time in between. Yeah. Not try to, you know, kind of just put in another call because I can um, type of thing. Um, and, and because that's, I think that you you sometimes have a little bit more breaks, I think that you you insert in because you're meeting with people in the office. So you, you, you generally space it yeah. a little bit. Or you, you're yeah, scheduling meetings that you might, nor, you know, like you have partner meetings. Now you have this, you're like, you're, you have more regimented scheduled meetings now. There is. There, a, yeah. And, and to your point about getting communication, we, we, we now kind of meet as a team three times a week versus one time a week now, just to make sure everybody's kind of, you know, on the same, on more of a similar page. Um, so, but that, that adds another, you know, time slot that, 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 that you're also kind of having a meeting. With, right. Right. And so, and so it's just, it's just additive, right. Kind of as you go along. And so I think from a founder's perspective, I, I, I do think that the, that focus, that thing that we talked about before, I think can really kind of help them here. Right. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And, and not get so overwhelmed because there's so much um, kind of, externalities are affecting almost all of our founders in different ways. I think there are, you know, certain founders that because they're in certain industries that are fundamentally impacted, right? Um, and, and it's hard for them to remove the externalities kind of from them, right? Because like, for example, you know, companies in the travel space, yeah. right? I mean, they just, they can't escape the externality kind of of it, right? And, but for the, but for the companies that are, you know, let's just say a, a few more steps removed from it, right? Um, and, and that they're not as directly impacted today doesn't mean that they're not impacted, you know, in terms of their pipeline, right. in terms e-commerce of companies, things like companies. things like that. Right. right. But they will. But they have, you know, maybe not the, as visceral of an impact kind of on them. I think, you know, a lot of times if you can take the opportunity to just focus on what needs to get done and to some extent, yes, you do want to still stay informed, but not just get too much of that externality kind of into your day-to-day and just focusing on to your point earlier about control what you can control right and focus on that yeah right and, and to some extent don't there's there's things that you can't worry about uh, the stuff that you can't control right uh, if you're worrying about that you're, you'll literally have burnout right 
uh, and, and if you just simply focus on, let's say this product development um, or R&D, or just making sure that you're still staying connected with your pipeline um, as efficiently as you can, just keeping them warm because knowing that they may not be able to make those decisions today, but they still kind of want to engage with you when you come out the other right. side, so long as they still have budget uh, type of thing. Um, I, I think it, it, it's that. It's control we control. Focus on those aspects of it. Uh, it's really easy to get overwhelmed, but be able to at least take some time in the day where you can decompress because right now there is no time. Like in LA, for better or for worse, at least for me, the decompression you know sometimes happens during the drive back home, right? You get that you know, 45 minute to an hour drive. If you're lucky, if you're lucky. (laughs) If you're you're lucky. And if you're not, you know, and if you're not trying to schedule another call in during that time uh, type of thing. So, you know, I try not to do that if at all possible, but you don't have that decompression time, right? And, 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 you know, for me, I also have a, you know, I have a three and a half year old at home. So, so, so decompression time also kind of gets a little bit uh, less structured, right? And, and so you do have to have that time because right now there is no beginning or end to the day kind of yeah. kind of it. It just kind of blends, yeah. right? And I think for a lot of people, one day blends to the next. You don't even remember when you spoke to, did you, was that Monday? Wednesday is yesterday, the day before. Yeah. Kind of, it just it all just kind of mushes and blends itself in. And so you do want to have, I think, some that decompression time, even if it's 30 minutes, right, um, type of thing. Knowing that, knowing, okay, so knowing that you need the decompression time and knowing that there is founder burnout if you just keep stacking every single day, what are your general thoughts? Like, do you think this is a good, I mean, I think you and I can both agree that we're having more meetings, we're connecting with more people, we're doing our output in general seems to, at least, uh, you know, for me, seems to be more is this the right way to do business, right? I mean, because it's so, it it was impossible to do this 12, 15 years ago. There was no video conferencing. There was no Slack. There was no Asana. Like, is, are we learning a new way of doing work? I I can say objectively, my team is happier not driving the two hours, not spending the $60 a week on gas, not spending the $50 a week on part. You know, like all of these things are like, wow, uh, there's, a lot of silver lining in this. Do you believe this is a, a new way of working? Just like the Hyperloop is a new way of transportation. Is this what you see as the future? Do you think that we will, when we hopefully get out of this soon, do you see everything kind of going back the way it was? I think it's too soon to tell. Like, like uh, kind of like we talked before, we're only about three weeks in. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and and like I said, there's always, there was always a recency bias, right? Um, I, I think uh, a lot of times. I think if we stay like this, frankly, for another four to six weeks, right? I think you know perspectives might be different. People might literally be getting cabin fever. They're like, I just can't do this. And for for people who may or may not have, you know, it gives new meaning to home offices, right? Yeah. And and and, and the need for a home office, right? And and you know. I'm not sure people really have really that aspect of things. I'm not sure it has sunk in yet, right? About hey, yeah. how did I work differently before this, and is this a better or worse way <laughs> of doing it? I think, certainly from a venture capital perspective, that you still need to have at some point 
uh, I think ideally meet those uh, teams in person. Right. Right. I think there's still, I think it might uh, be six I, feet I apart, but you still got to, you still got to make it. I think that's still, I think those relationship building, right. And maybe the millennials can get over on this. Yeah. They'll just better, TikTok right? their way through it. Right. Exactly. They'll just TikTok their way through it. Right. And do you know kind of house party all the way through. Uh, but you know, for 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 the guys who 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 maybe are, are not in that generation, but but even for for even for that generation, I think you know the the relationship you're building is it how I guess how tight or how impactful or how strong are those relationships are you building virtually? Now you can you know you can ask a lot of people, and I think a lot of people have different answers to that, right? Um, you know, some some will say, well, I, I know them, but I, do I really know them, mm. right? Uh, because there is a virtual persona potentially versus a real life persona, right? It's wild. And, 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 <laughs> right? yeah. and, and, and to some extent, you know, what are you, uh, you know, is that, are they interfacing with emojis or are they interfacing like this face-to-face where you actually see kind of non, a non-avatar, right, type of thing. Um, and so I think that's going to, I, I think that's going to evolve. I, I do think that it, this may change the way I think, you know, people interact going forward. Um, if this works out uh, kind of well, then I think, you know, people may say, look, you know what, let's do more of those conference calls, video conference calls, instead of meeting in person, um, you know, until we get to a need, uh, get to a point where that is needed, right? Um, so that m- maybe the, the, the burden of travel um, is a little bit less, especially for companies um, that you know may not be situated in, in Silicon Valley or in LA or anything like that that we're, you know that people are close to. Um, so maybe that that may change a little bit more there in terms of you know how much of this thing is done virtually versus mm-hmm. how much it was done virtually beforehand. Yeah, but I, I'd say I'd say that this, look, I think it's going to evolve, and we'll see what happens in four to six weeks from now because you could and get to a point where nobody's writing a term sheet, right? Like, like, like for, for, for new investments, uh, you know, for anything greater than X amount of dollars, whatever the case may be. Um, and because they just fundamentally need to be able to kind of meet that, um, uh, meet that founder in person for whatever reason. So, you know, and or productivity for the sake of productivity doesn't, isn't really that productive, right? Like, you know, it's, it, you, we could be on, 12 calls a day, but does that mean that we're fundamentally being more productive uh, yeah. in terms of kind of end product? I, um, so that's what remains to be seen. I, I had this great conversation with it. So, so Colabs, my company, Coefficient Labs, started in my apartment, and then we eventually moved to a WeWork. And we were in WeWork for about maybe two years or so. And, you know, WeWorks are such a compact space. And I was having a conversation with a, a mentor of mine as we were about to move into our, our first official you know, uh, dedicated office space outside of WeWork. And he said, you know, uh, physical space has the ability to both open and hinder creativity. And it made me think because like when you're in WeWork and you're in such small quarters, we talked about how we wanted to do a podcast. Like, wouldn't it be so cool? But we had eight people, you know, 10 people packed into a seven person, eight person space. There's like, there's no room. Wouldn't it be cool to hire these people? There's no room. Like, so physical space. Uh, and then when we moved and we have this big office and we're able to like uh, have different meeting rooms and talk to people and ideas are more freely distributed. 
I wonder, like, I wonder, I don't know, like you, you have me thinking about how like the great companies are going to get greater, but what about if the great employees aren't well suited for the cabin fever environment? Does that, you know what I mean? It's like, even if you have a great leader and a great manager, but you take someone that traditionally needs open space and needs to talk and ping pong off of ideas, but now you're putting them in this environment where they're not able to be with those people. I, I wonder... I wonder how that impacts like those top performers. Do you know, I don't know. It's kind of weird, like to think that in this environment, there's some people that are just going to be suited better to be working at home, focused more, having more structure. And then there are those that actually this could be a, a real hindrance to their growth. Yeah, I, th I think it's going to be personality, right? And, and 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 this is where I think you know. You have people who are introverts um, are going to succeed is basically those introverts and extroverts, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and, and it's going to be really interesting. Um, you know, sales guys um, they, they sell anyways, right? So they don't even need to be in the office anyways, <laughs> right? They're just out selling, right? Um, but you know, it's going to be more interesting from I think from a creative standpoint, yeah, right? Uh, creative creation standpoint, be it engineering, marketing, whatever the case may be. Um, and it's going to depend on the depend on the people. Yeah, I think some teams, I think, thrive on being able to whiteboard in a room together, mm -hmm. right? Uh, yeah. and, and there's a bit of that uh, that 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 additional juice that happens when everyone is in a room. That even though you're you, you could be vir virtually in a room together, right? Um, that may or may not um, be as easy. Right, uh, and, and when you're when you're potentially whiteboarding, I think the technology still probably needs to evolve a little bit bit uh, more on maybe the whiteboarding aspect to put old fundamentally sort of get there a little bit more. When you know it's easy to hand off and everybody's drawing on the same board, whatever the case may be. But there's still a bit of a difference, I think, potentially just that 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 aura, that feeling that you have in the room, right? Um, when you know you're literally it's at eleven at night. And you guys are literally spitballing kind of ideas, yeah. right? And, and there's a, there's a, there's a shared camaraderie that that may not be replicable, kind of online. Do you? But there are aspects of. Sorry, I was gonna things where like, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna ask like, do you think so? So let's play the hypothetical that let's let's play the the negative hypothetical that we have three more months of this, six more months of. I mean, I don't know. Just like like let's pretend this becomes a more of a new norm here. Do you think that this in this environment is going to be the beginning, not the beginning, but like the real apex of virtual reality? Because I feel like that is how you can bridge that gap, right? Like you throw your headset on, now you're virtually in a room with someone else and you have the white, like, do you, do you think that this, because VR has had a couple stints with Oculus and even before that, but like, is this the moment that VR is going to catch on in your opinion? Or do you think, uh, are you, are you skeptical on VR? Well, look, I, I think VR still has to figure out uh, if, you, if it's fundamental VR versus AR. I think VR still has to figure out on a technical side uh, that people can stay within the environment for more than 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. True. You know, before getting kind of busy um, and whatnot. Uh, I think there's a, there's a technical hurdle, I think still to VR. Uh, it, now, if VR was there technically, this probably would have spurred, I think, more adoption potentially, um, you know, in, in this instance. But I'm not sure they are at a stage where that that is going to happen simply because of kind of where the technology mm. currently stands. Um, but I think 
you know, the AR aspect is going to be interesting, whether or not this actually, you know, help accelerates um, kind of that aspect of mm. it. Um, and, and just the, the augmented reality aspect of virtual um, kind of uh, in a virtual environment, right? Uh, where it's, it's a little, at least you can stay in that environment, I think, a, a bit more longer term than certainly VR uh, in a completely kind of virtual environment. Um, but I don't think the technology is there yet where that, that can happen. Um, and, and, you know, maybe when it gets to that point and we, when we have this, you know, another pandemic, hopefully not, uh, that that kind of comes back into play mm. if people are more sheltered at home. Um, these days, but I think that's going to, I'm not sure yet. I, yeah. I think I still, I think it's still early just because of, from a technology perspective, I don't think there's, it's there yet. Mm. Um, couple more questions for you, Howard. Thank you so much for the time, by the way. I know this is, uh, we're, we're creeping on the hour plus mark here. Um, are there any books or any, yeah, are there any books that you tend to either give away as a gift or have been fundamental to your growth and your life, whether it's as been as a VC or an entrepreneur? It's funny. Um, I still harken back to a book I read a real long time ago. It's, it's called The Buffett Way. Uh, and, and it's not so much geared towards, you know, lean startup or, you know, startups in general. Um, but it still goes back to the fundamental premise of just focus on building your business, focus on building your company, and don't let the day-to-day externalities Right, um, kind of impact you. I think one of the, I think one of the founding principles. I think in that book really talked about how Buffett looks at investments, which is you got to be able to ignore the the stock price fluctuations. Mm-hmm. Right. I think in in this case, uh, you just you have to ignore to some extent the day to day fluctuations that happen in the marketplace and whatnot, and really just focus it on what you can control. Yeah, it's like right? very and Zen Buddhist really, kind of almost mentality. Yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it's a little bit more of that. It's it's, it's more you know, and focus on, on, on things that actually matter, right? Um, and, and really focus uh, and hone in on the business aspect of it. And we talked about the tech, uh, tech, the tech is that interesting, but really focus on the business, why the business exists, mm. right? And, and what problem are you really solving for, right? I, I think there's a, there's a, there's an underlying, I think, premise that prop that, that there's an underlying premise from that, uh, that I think permeates no matter whether you're or not you're a public, uh, you know, public investor um, or, or a private investor and or a founder, right? Um, that baseline of just, you know, focus on the stuff that matters, right? And don't get too swayed from the day-to-day fluctuations because there's always going to be externalities all the time, right? how you deal with those externalities and how you kind of are able to sometimes tune out that and just focus on what can move the needle for you and what you can control to move the needle for you. I think are some basic guidelines. I think we, I think we can still all follow. That's amazing. What are you most excited about right now? Could be personal, could be business, but, but right now as you wake up, what are you most excited about? Well, I, I'd be most excited about finding a vaccine for this, right? Um, uh, you know, for 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 COVID, um, I think that 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 would be, I, I think, the penultimate outcome in in, in the nearer term. Um, you know, I think as people get back to more norm, because I, I think fundamentally, I think we're not going to really be able to get back to norm until that sort of happens, yeah. Per se, 
Um, but that's, you know, if I was waking up today, that, that, that's what I was like, hey, let's just hopefully get to that vaccine. Yeah. Hopefully kind of like all our scientists, kind of uh, all the compute power that, you know, we invest, we just recently invested in a quantum computing com- company. I'm like, can we harness all of the stuff that we've all been investing in and, 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 and all the technologies that we've built over the years to, to hurry up and get to that point so that it doesn't take, you know, even 18 months, although 18 months is a whole kind of realm of things in the vaccine uh, world is pretty short, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think that aspect of things, um, but still, I think fundamentally, I think I still get excited day to day. It is really still kind of really meeting with founders mm-hmm. um, that have really, really great ideas, right? I, I, I'm still, I, I'm still at heart a builder, yeah, right? Um, and, 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 and certainly, um, still fascinated by, I think, new technology um, and new business models and whatnot. Um, so I, st- you know, I think that's still what gets me up day to day, right? That I'm that I'm still meeting with that next potentially that next great company. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, Howard, we didn't get a we didn't get to talk about this uh, when we were talking about Morpheus. But what what are the kind of the size of company? Are are is Morpheus what size checks about like for a company that's looking for investment? Uh, where do they typically come to you guys? Are they pre-seed, seed, Series A? Uh, what sort of investments are you making in startups that feel like the right fit for you? Yeah, it's funny. Um, you know, I always go by the check sizes more than nomenclature because uh, right. you know, I think these days nomenclature kind of blends. Oh, yeah. Uh, what, 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 seed plus, A minus, you know, yeah. it's all like... Well, <laughs> it's also, if Silicon Valley Series A is going to be a very different from a Seattle Series A or a Houston Series A or even an LA Series A. Uh, so... I think our check size is between one to ten million. Okay. Um, I'd say I'd say our sweeter spot is probably called between that three to seven mark. Um, so just if we had to put a stage on it, we probably go from C to Series A to Series B, where Series A is really where our kind of sweet spot is uh, for the most part. Uh, and so that's kind of if, if there was a if there was a nomenclature range that would that would sort of be there and our check size is roughly around there. You know, we do still have some flexibility kind of, kind of within that. Um, but that's kind of the boundary sure. sets that we typically look for. Uh, Howard, where can people get in contact or where's the best place for them to get contact, uh, whether it be on the socials or email? How, how would you like people that maybe see this and think that they could be a good fit uh, to connect with you? Yeah, look, uh, most of our... Uh, I'd say investment opportunities are through referrals mm-hmm. for to from, from people we know. Um, you know, it's it could be from uh, the accountants, the lawyers, even from you guys. Um, there's a lot of times that uh, it's just you know different connectivity points, yeah. um, type of thing. Uh, and 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 we try to also be out. Uh, I think you know when you know people weren't locked down, <laughs> we try to be as also available uh, in, in, in different events and whatnot to be to to be um, that people can approach us kind of um, kind of independently or as a group type of thing. Uh, and so they can they can certainly kind of um, kind of get in touch with us um, via email. Um, and we, we do that quite a bit. Um, and and you know, they could just email myself um, kind of at, at Morpheus is just literally Howard at Morpheus.com. Um, in terms of kind of getting in touch with me. Um, and, and it's, you know, we, we try to be as, uh, as approachable and open um, to, to people as possible, uh, I think, in terms of kind of looking at new opportunities and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah. Um, but like I said, a lot of times it's re- through referrals um, and type of thing. And, and we certainly um, kind of value um, kind of a lot of those type of referrals um, that they bring in. Cool. Well, I definitely have some friends that I think could potentially be a, at least a, a virtual coffee for you. And I'm looking forward to continuing 
the relationship, Howard. Thank you so much for the time today. This was uh, really insightful and, you know, uh, just a, you know, it's tough times for everyone and uh, hearing your perspective on it uh, has been really just nice. So thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate you. No, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Uh, so stay safe and stay healthy. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay home. Everyone stay home. Yes. <laughs> cool. <laughs> I'm Sean Goldfan. This is Demo Day. Demo Day.